This is Fire Rescue One Side Alpha Podcast, putting fire service leaders in front of hot topics facing firefighters today. Now here's the executive editor of FireRescueOne.com and FireChief.com, Chief Mark Bashore. On Side Alpha Podcast today, we'll be having a conversation with the new city of Oakland, California Fire Chief, Reginald Freeman. Now I don't always read long bios on here, however today, I ask you to sit back for just a minute and listen to these accomplishments. Chief Freeman began his career as a firefighter in Mississippi. From there, he traveled to Iraq, where he served for four years as a civilian fire chief. After returning to the States, Chief Freeman pursued his bachelor's and master's degrees, EFO training, CFO certification, uh, served as a board commissioner of the Center for Public Safety Excellence, and became a fellow with the Harvard School of Management. He's currently working on his doctoral degree. At 28 years of age, Chief Freeman joined the Institution of Fire Engineers, where he is a fellow today. In 2009, he served as a fire chief for Lockheed Martin's Aeronautics in Atlanta, Georgia, then in 2013 as fire chief for Lockheed Martin's Aeronautics headquarters in Fort Worth, Texas. In February 2016, uh, Freeman was appointed chief of the Harford, Connecticut Fire Department. And then in April 2021, he was appointed chief of the Oakland, California Fire Department. Freeman's an adjunct instructor at several state colleges, universities, and academies, and he sits on the board of directors of the National Fire Protection Association. Chief, I want to welcome you to the Side Alpha podcast. That is a whirlwind of history, and I know, uh, you know you've only been in Oakland a few months now, but how's it going for you there? Hey, hello, Chief, and thank you so much for having me on the Side Alpha podcast. Uh, truly, truly a remarkable honor for me to be here with a fire service legend such as yourself. Oh, I, yeah, okay. <laughs> every, let, me, every, let me get my feet up on the counter right now. <laughs> Everything that you've done for the fire service, I, I sincerely appreciate, as well as all your brothers and sisters who still wear this uniform. Thanks. Thank you, sir. Uh, you know, it's been it's been a great transition here at Oakland, and I literally left Hartford on a Friday, last day at work, and the following Monday, uh, just a few days later, put on my uniform and started serving the the great firefighters and the residents of the city of Oakland. And one thing I've been so impressed about is the attitude of our Oakland firefighters. I mean, you talk about uh, being short-staffed, not having the the appropriate resources that an organization should have to be successful. Uh, somehow, some way, they continue to find a way to be successful. So. Uh, certainly proud to serve the great men and women of the Oakland Fire Department. As we hear them take a trip down the road there, that uh, is fitting to have ended that that uh, question with uh, your folks responding down the road. You know, I'd say Oakland's a fairly unique city. Uh, it's somewhat, uh, uh, my words, somewhat of a rough reputation, maybe. Uh, yet there's quite a few areas with multi-million dollar homes, um, you know, lots of uh, different uh, environments there. Um, you know, recognizing that and recognizing that being a fire chief is is dynamic enough, but serving as a fire chief on the East Coast and then on the West Coast, I'm sure is quite different. 
in in some uh, respects. Can you shed some light on those chiefly differences or similarities comparing Hartford and Oakland? No, absolutely. You know, there's ironically enough, there are a lot more things that are similar than different with Hartford and Oakland, and particularly from the uh, social economic standpoint. Hartford was once known as a bustling, uh, very healthy commerce-wise city, uh, especially back when the Colt Firearms Factory was was bustling. Uh, and then, of course, probably towards the 60s or the 70s, it started taking a financial downturn. And uh, we have a lot, there's a lot of people living below the poverty level, a uh, number of residents who are unemployed. And the same story is here in Oakland. But one thing that is consistent between the two from a, a, a social perspective is that the, the people, people are absolutely beautiful, uh, beautiful hearts in regards to their dedication and commitment to their community. And uh, the resolve is second to none. Sure. Uh, and so for as a fire chief, especially a for fire chiefs who are committed and dedicated to their community and you're engaged within your community. And then that that commitment is reciprocated with the constituency. Uh, it's It's been great. It was great at Hartford. It's been great thus far here in Oakland. Now, from a management standpoint, uh, throwing on the fire chief hat, you know, you have building construction, uh, which are obviously uh, different uh, to, to a certain degree. Uh, the Hartford Fire Fire Department was established December 6, 1864. Oakland Fire Department was established as a career organization March 13, 1869. So, uh, and both both have a certain swagger about them, which I think is really what attracted me to both to begin with. Right? It's not a, yeah. a cookie cutter organization uh, to no stretch of the imagination. Uh, the men and women as it pertains to suppression, have a interior aggressive attitude, which, you know, I put my little spin on it is, which we're going to be a calculated interior aggressive organization. Uh, but they're, they're certainly, certainly uh, committed and dedicated to the profession, to the city. Uh, equipment wise here in Oakland, uh, we run all Pierce, have ran all Pierce for, for quite some time in Oakland, uh, for the most, or excuse me, in Hartford, for the most part, uh, we were running Suffins for our trucks. So uh, change that up as of recent, uh, just to get a different complement of of uh, trucks on our forte, which was uh, instead of having just Suffin towers, we introduced some E1 straight sticks rear mounts. Uh, here in Oakland, we have we have uh, nothing but tillers. So. Uh, and then as a chief, right, you don't want to, as it's very important to have a different complement of, of trucks for uh, tactics and strategy purposes, when you're looking at the reality of uh, leading an organization that does not have that much money funding wise from City Hall, uh, you don't want to introduce uh, apparatus that may be less expensive than what you currently have, because, you know, if you do that, then the powers that be will say, oh, well, since we saved $400,000 with going to a straight stick, then, you know, maybe we won't buy as many tillers moving forward in the future. So that's my only apprehension about uh, diversifying the truck complements here in Oakland, as we started to do in Hartford before I left. 
but again, the similarity uh, between both organizations is that it, there's exceptional men and women who wear the uniform, dedicated consummate professionals, and uh, truly honored to be able to serve, uh, honored to have had the opportunity to serve in Hartford, and even more humble to be able to serve the great men and women of the Oakland Fire Department. Sure. So let me ask you, what's the uh, similarities or differences, if you will, with respect to the community's relationship with the department? You know, we were kind of talking off air about the, um, um, you know, how the, the fire service is typically the most loved or most revered of, of agencies in county government. Do you have a similar relationship and and was that the similar experience in both cities? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, yeah. in Hartford, uh, Hartford was the first class one ISO class one department in uh, all of New England. They earned a designation February 1st, 1991, mm-hmm. uh, prior to my departure, March of 2020. Uh, they earned the uh, earned uh, the international accreditation from CFAI, becoming the first internationally accredited department in all of Connecticut. And here in Oakland, uh, currently we are a class two, but uh, breaking news, uh, we have been referred for our class one designation. So I'm very excited when that becomes official and we can make that announcement to our our residents and our stakeholders here in the community. And that was accomplished just by pure grit, professionalism and dedication by our members. They really rolled up their sleeves. They looked at what had to be done and they did the work. And anyone that's been that's been involved in that process understands how much work uh, goes along in earning a class one designation. And so, so, so proud of our members who had a hand in that because the community absolutely loves their Oakland Fire Department. I can't go anywhere without someone thanking me for the job that our men and women do on a daily basis. And it just makes me proud as the chief to be able to serve them so they can have that kind of impact on people. Yeah, I I definitely can relate to it's, uh, there's no feeling like uh, someone in the community stopping you, especially when you're not in the middle of something, but uh, you know, a big incident, but they just stop you in the middle of the street and say, you know, I'm gonna thank you for what your people do every day. So I can relate to that. And folks, you heard it here first on Side Alpha Podcast, Oakland earning the class one designation. Of course, it's not announced yet, so I guess you can't do anything with it. All right. So we've got East Coast, West Coast, but there's another dynamic here. You served as a civilian um, chief. Uh, You started in different positions, but made it up to chief in Iraq. Uh, That has to have had some uh, what I'll call uh, soul shocking differences between the states. Can you shed some light on that experience, what, what that was like? You know, Chief, it was it was it was interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so I first first got to Iraq November fifth, two thousand and four, and left November twelfth, two thousand and eight, um, as a green, very insecure young man who absolutely loved the fire service. But I was thrust into this position of authority uh, as an officer, and had the the weight of the world as it felt like on my shoulders as I knew uh, that the life and the safety of the men and women under my command was solely, solely dependent upon the decisions that I was making or I was going to make as as 
their their leader. And I, I call it dog years. You really grow up real fast in any position of authority as you're put in that position as a young man or a young woman. Uh, but I learned a lot. I learned a lot, not only about myself, uh, but also about leadership and about management in general and a lot about people. And I think, you know, for most of us who wear this uniform as firefighters, we join the fire service because we're passionate about two things, people and serving. And for me to be able to go to Iraq and working for the Department of Defense as a civilian and serving those who protected us, especially with my father being a retired career non-commissioned officer for the U.S. Air Force and me always wanting to serve my country uh, to a certain extent, that was truly, truly a remarkable opportunity. And I, I can distinctly recall even being there just for a month, we had the uh, suicide bombing in the chow hall and the DFAC dining facility where civilians and the military personnel ate chow, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Uh, that was an experience I'll never forget. I remember doing the walkthrough the day after, even with the FBI as we were picking up ball bearings and so forth from, uh, from, the, uh, from the enemy who detonated the suicide vest after sitting on the table. And you can distinctly, I can still see, plain as day, uh, the V marks in the concrete in a perfect V with divots in the concrete from the ball bearings uh, in the front and the back from his from his vest. So uh, mass casualty incidents from IDF indirect fire attacks, which are rockets and mortars uh, hitting uh, living areas, hitting place of public assembly, whether it be the, the BX where shopping took place or even chow halls, uh, for that matter. Uh, those experiences uh, I'll always carry with me, but more importantly, the opportunity to grow as a professional and to grow as a person and learn so much about myself and learn so much about leadership at such a young age really, really helped me uh, do the things that I'm doing today. Yeah. Yeah, no, that uh, sounds like that growth in leadership is uh, is huge. So, you know, and you talked a little bit a couple times about um, how young you were. Can you share a bit about your path in the fire service? Uh, you know, that that journey sounds as you read the bio and as you, uh, you know, you, you listen to some of your talks. Um, that journey is pretty exceptional. So if you could share with us and specifically I'm looking at um if you can lay out some of the challenges you've had along the way and how you address those challenges. That's a great question, Chief. And so my, my career started, as you mentioned earlier, as a firefighter EMT in Mississippi. And and I was very, uh, very eager to better myself. And prior to joining the fire service, I was an All-American track and field athlete. You wouldn't know that today because I'm about... 80 pounds heavier today than what I was when I was running track in high school as an All-American. But hey, I got a I got a program for you, man. <laughs> I need it. I need that program, Chief. Because uh, I definitely, definitely let myself go a little bit. I blame it on the I blame it on the coffee and the meetings. All right. I'll but take it. but to have to have the opportunity to to transcend all of that energy and dedication and commitment that I had in becoming an all-American athlete. All I did is really, really 
uh, transform that into my profession and what I'm doing today. And so even as a firefighter, my attitude was, you know, although I'm going to do everything in my power to excel and to be the best, it's not necessarily important to be the best as it is to put my best foot forward. And I knew as a firefighter, the only way that I could put my best foot forward was to educate and enlighten myself. And you do that through training. You do that through education and the training, you know, proficiency wise in the firehouse. I was dedicated, always engaged, always paying attention. And then from a certification standpoint, you know, I put myself through confined space rescue tech. I put myself through rope rescue one and two rescue tech. I put myself through hazmat tech, chemistry of hazmat, National Fire Academy, uh, who a good friend of mine, Dave Matthew, taught. And now fast forward today, we're actually teaching at different trade shows together. Uh, the irony in that. Um, and then the education piece, you know, pursuing my bachelor's, pursuing my master's and then my doctorate. As a young firefighter, it was very important that I put myself in a position to never be the weakest link. I didn't want to be an expert in everything. I just wanted to be competent. So that's why all the technical rescue disciplines, you know, vehicle and machinery, extrication tech and all the other classes that I mentioned. And then you look at fire officer one and two, I put myself through. You know, I can go on and on and on. Those things were so important because I wanted to ensure that I did my job and I did my job well. I didn't want anyone on the team to say, you know, Reggie, what were you thinking? You know, why did you drop the ball on that? Let me ask you a question, though, Mm -hmm. Um, because, you know, I think we're missing something there to the story and maybe you're going to tell it. But you don't typically hear a firefighter say, I put myself through those classes. Typically, there's a path. Uh, and, I, you know, obviously I'm trying to get to something. Typically, there's a path and, and firefighters follow that path or uh, they have mentors that uh, show them that path or lead them along the path. But it sounds like that wasn't the case. You said you had to put yourself through those classes. Can you explain that? So, you know, in, being in Mississippi, being the only uh, African-American firefighter and even at in the year 2001 because this year i actually celebrated my 20-year anniversary in the fire service which i can't believe i'm saying that seems like thank you thank you so much uh seems like i just got on the job a few years ago uh because i remember it like yesterday but uh, i had challenges i had significant challenges and it's interesting to me as we have discussions today about diversity equity and inclusion and how some of our brothers and sisters in the fire service will really embrace embrace that initiative and others will will scowl at it or or uh, dismiss it and it's truly hard to understand what it feels like to be discriminated against until it's happened to you because i truly believe if anyone has been on the receiving end of any kind of bias harassment or discrimination you would be the loudest person speaking against it. And so for me, everything that I went through, uh, being called the N-word in the firehouse, Hmm. not once, not twice, several times, uh, having a noose in my locker, having racial epithets written on pieces of paper and stuffed in my locker, having broken glass in my bunk boots. Hmm. So having those experiences, it really, for, for me, it really put me in a position to where I wanted to 
be in a position to where no one else would have to feel the way that I felt. So regardless of your orientation, regardless of your gender, uh, regardless of what religious denomination you practice, me as the chief was going to ensure that you would come to work and feel valued, you would come to work and feel respected, and you will come to work and have a healthy environment. Because I didn't have that in the beginning of my career. And it really drove me to do the things that I, that I was doing. But I tell every young firefighter, anytime I have an opportunity to have a very frank and open discussion with them about progress and about ambitions, don't do something just to prove a point or to, or to, um, don't do something to just prove someone to be wrong, like you, or in essence, you have to prove something to yourself. Do something because it is important to you. And that is something that I made the mistake of early on in my career was doing things to prove other people wrong. Sure. Sure. So, you know, you you um, certainly have a, a lot of self-starting and a lot of building your own career, which is uh, phenomenal. I mean, I, I can feel some of that uh, in my own path, but but certainly not all the experiences that you've had there. So now you're at a department. You've got a lot of challenges there over the years. You're at 20 years. I'm at, at 40 I suppose you weren't even alive when I started. Uh, I don't know, but um, that you know, you had a lot of challenges there. But let's let's speak to the pressure of now joining as uh, chief of department of a department that's been through so much in the past five years, and I'm talking about Oakland uh, and specifically following the the ghost ship fire. Um, I, I knew the chief at the time, and I. Um, uh, wish her well, and you know, I we we had a lot of conversations after the ghost ship fire, uh, so I'm pretty intimately familiar with what she was going through. So, somewhat rhetorically, I, uh, you know, I ask you, I, I, how do you dive into that, and do you feel like ultimately people are looking to you to make things right, so to speak? You know, Chief, I, I look at it similar to to Hartford, right? Uh, Hartford, there is a lot of a lot of challenges, and a very proud organization, historical organization, where you had the Barnum and Bailey Circus Fire, you had the the deadly Hartford Hospital Fire, and the the organization itself always had a stellar reputation to have exceptional men and women wear that uniform. But prior to me getting there in 2016, you know, if you were just to Google the organization and especially if you lived there locally, you always saw the department in the news for all the wrong reasons, uh, mm-hmm. whether it be firefighter shooting someone off duty, uh, whether it be uh, on that happened a few times, a few different occasions, uh, firefighter getting arrested for selling drugs and selling drugs out of firehouse. Uh, and then, you know, unfortunately, we had. Kevin Lamont Bell, who passed away in the line of duty on October 7, 2014. May he rest in peace. And there was there was a, a situation where you had great firefighters who were committed to the mission, 
but there was something missing and it was at no fault of the firefighters. So we came in, we did what we had to do, starting off with listening to the firefighters as far as what their needs were. And we were able to uh, take a organization that we inherited that had those issues that I just mentioned and then leave it as an internationally accredited organization. Oakland, Oakland, this, I can certainly say um, I can see some similarities because as I've gone through and met with every single firefighter on every shift and every firehouse uh, now after being here for, for close to three months now and hearing their stories, and as I talk about what my expectations are of them, I would always end every single conversation with, so you've heard what my expectations are of you. What are your expectations of me? Because that's the important part as a chief for me to know and, and to understand. And I say, chief, we just want leadership. Chief, we need leadership. So looking at what happened at the ghost ship fire where 36 people lost their lives, there's another element of that story uh, that was not widely publicized, uh, which would give a different perspective on what actually occurred um, and some, some contributing factors. But the firefighters, with them knowing the truth and them still uh, coming to work, wearing their uniform, serving their city with pride and distinction in spite of people having the wrong interpretation of some things that that were relevant to the story uh, was truly remarkable. And even with me coming in from the outside roughly five years later and then them telling me how that made them feel and telling me, you know, chief, this is this is really some of the contributing factors as to what happened. Um, truly, truly inspiring to me to continue to work even harder to serve them and to make sure that they have everything that they need to do their job and to be successful on a daily basis. So I enjoy challenges, chief. Mm -hmm. uh, and I honestly did not come here uh, to to address, quote unquote, uh, the ghost ship fire incident. I came sure. here to serve the men and women of the Oakland Fire Department and our great residents and visitors of the city of Oakland. Just so happens uh, there are some things that warrant my attention as pertains to things that would be relevant to that to that tragic incident. Uh, community risk reduction is something that I'm passionate about. Establishing or conducting community risk assessments is something that I'm passionate about. And um, leading is something that I'm very passionate about. So yeah. uh, I, I knew there would be opportunity to, to address longstanding organizational issues, but at the same time, making the organization better one individual at a time. So uh, I, I've had, it's, it's been, it's been a whirlwind <laughs> since yeah. I've gotten here, uh, going back to May, but it's also every single day I've had a blast and had a great time, even those 12, 13, 14 hour work days and, and, you know, going to community events on Saturdays and on Sundays, um, taking my family to some of those, some of those sure. community events. It's been an absolute uh, pleasure to be here and to, and to do the things that we're doing. 
And that's a beautiful place, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're doing wonders with it. So let's um, switch gears for just a minute and uh, look at Oakland in a different way. We want to talk about the uh, fire department-based program that was announced just prior to you taking office. Uh, specifically in March 2021, a new model for dealing with uh, community mental health uh, crises, uh, with placing the responsibility for responding to uh, emergencies involving mental health crises uh, or other nonviolent crimes directly with the fire department, uh, instead of what had been primarily the police department in the past. Uh, now, you know, many of us have dealt with the response to emergency psychological situations and uh, but normally we're in a, a support role and what i've seen and or what, at least what was announced uh, puts the fire department in the lead role and that's a little bit of a role reversal that i'm sure has been difficult can you speak to the program and how that manifested uh, you know after that announcement and, and how it manifests today absolutely so the, the program that you're referencing is uh, what we call the macro program and that acronym stands for mobile assistance community responders of oakland and it's interesting to for me to learn how we came about uh, being involved <laughs> in managing the macro program because as you stated that's just something typically that the fire department does not do so originally it was slated to be under the guise of a nonprofit organization. It was very close for that to be solidified through council. Uh, then there was a change of heart uh, by a few council members. And then it was recommended that, hey, you know, why don't we put it underneath the fire department? And give it, give, give it to Mikey, he'll eat everything. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So now here we are. And so one of the first questions that I had coming in is, all right, so exactly how does this program work? Who's managing it, et cetera. So our EMS manager, who is a civilian in the fire department, uh, is going to be managing the macro program. Mm -hmm. And we're currently in a process of hiring a program manager, as well as EMT crisis support specialists, as well as community resource specialists. Now, what's interesting is the latter, the community resource specialist originally was called the crisis resource specialist, but there was feedback from the community uh, stating that, hey, we don't want anyone with the title of crisis in it, you know, serving in the capacity that they're going to be serving on on the macro team. And so that's how we changed it from crisis resource specialist to community resource specialist. Uh, there's going to be two two teams in West Oakland and well, as well as East Oakland. We're looking to expand uh, the teams. And I'm also looking, making an attempt to add a clinician. And originally, uh, ironically enough, the community did not want a professional clinician to be deployed or to be on the team mm -hmm. and to be out in the street. Uh, they wanted the for the community resource specialist. You may ask yourself, OK, what would. Uh, what would one do with that title or where, you know, what would be their background? So the, the community is adamant about uh, folks from the neighborhood having an opportunity, folks from the neighborhood who's familiar with the people, familiar with the environment, uh, have an opportunity to, to do this work that will just so happen uh, to have specialized training, 
and be able to de have de-escalation training and self-defense training uh, to be able to go out and deploy to address uh, our mental mental health issues with some of our with some of our residents. And so, uh, I would I would hope that after the pilot, and we have 12.4 million dollars to conduct the pilot, the 12 year 12 month pilot. I would hope that we would be able to provide services on a 24 hour basis. Right now, we're looking at the data to ascertain uh, exactly what time of day or night uh, that the teams will be available. And if it turns out to where it's gonna be 24 hours, uh, then that's exactly what it's gonna be. But for right now, it's gonna be from 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. is what it's slated for, uh, with the uh, understanding that we will expand the team and even be able to have a third team downtown if necessary. So no firefighters are responding. Uh, they'll just respond if there's a medical incident as we normally would. But those folks who would, uh, that would respond to neighbor disputes or someone who may be speaking to themselves, uh, someone that would be demonstrating uh, any signs of mental illness uh, without violence, that's what the macro team members will be deploying to. So uh, I think it's great to have law enforcement not respond uh, to someone that is having a mental health crisis, uh, just for obvious reasons of things that's occurred over over years uh, within our different communities. Um, someone, you know, uh, having someone under mental distress and uh, ends up, uh, unfortunately, uh, being shot, shot and killed by police. Um, I think all of us are on board on trying to stop that or prevent that from happening if we can. So uh, we're proud to manage the program, uh, but firefighters will not be the ones that are actually responding uh, to the calls unless there's a medical emergency. So so basically, I mean, it doesn't sound like there's really any response challenges for you. It's, it's more about developing the cadre of um, a combination of civilian and sworn EMS personnel that uh, will have specialized training and are capable to handle those particular issues. Uh, but it's not a, it, it doesn't sound to me like you have any response challenges that have been created because it's really not a, a change in the fire department's response per se. It's more, uh, like I said, a civilian or uh, EMS centric issue. No, absolutely. So, okay. Uh, no sworn EMTs will be involved okay. unless there's a medical emergency. It's uh, managed by civilians, and civilians will be deployed. So, okay. uh, we're 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 excited about the launch. We're hope we're hoping that the macro teams will be out on the street uh, by November, December of this year. So we did get approved this past March by council, and we're still you know tying all the ends together to make sure that we have all our ducks in a row before they actually go go live. So looking for a deployment by the end, end of the calendar year. That's right. Okay. All right. Good stuff. Yeah, those are some challenges, uh, but certainly some, some positive-looking uh, uh, challenges for how to help serve your community. As I read in your bio, um, I, I mentioned – your uh, affiliation with several state colleges and universities. And um, what I did not specifically mention was that you 
older position as the director of training for the Caribbean Association of Fire Chiefs. So, so I, I, I chuckle a little bit because I'm, you know what, I, you know what the question's coming here, right? So, um, but first part of the question is what draws you to this side of the business? And then from one chief who's buried in 14 projects around the world to another, can you speak to how you find time to fit all this in? <laughs> That's a great question, man. I, I ask myself that same question periodically, but uh, no, I'm, I'm very passionate about training and and professional development and that's something because I'm, I've known I, I've, I've experienced how it's helped me and so anytime there's opportunity for me to assist anyone in accomplishing their goals then I, I certainly do that and 13 years ago as when I first joined uh, the Caribbean Association of Fire Chiefs team um, and back then even the name wasn't CAFC it was CACDACFO, so they actually spelled out Caribbean Association of Fire Chiefs, Deputy Chiefs, Assistant Chiefs. Nice. Uh, and I, I made the recommendations, the president at the time, Greg Richards, I said, Chief, you know, we got to shorten this up. I know Caribbean Association of Fire Chiefs is very similar when you use the acronym to Canadian Association of Fire Chiefs, but, you know, I'm, I'm getting tongue-tied saying CACDACFO. So uh, what we did years ago was created the Junior Junior Officer Leadership Academy and Senior Officer Leadership Academy. And we've trained literally to date thousands of members throughout the islands in leadership and management principles. And to be able to see their growth over the years and for them to reach out and to say, hey, Chief, you know, because of the program that I attended that you and Dr. Cooper and Dr. Kennedy did, I was able to get promoted to watch commander, which a lot of the islands use the uh, the English uh, system of ranking. And so a watch commander would be equivalent to our captain. Uh, to, just to hear those stories is just remarkable. And so, I, I'm, again, I'm very passionate about professional development and training. And uh, for me, it was giving back, you know, and, and the way it came about, I had just started my consulting firm and I was uh, looking to get my foot in the door uh, with some new new clients. And I reached out to the president while I was still in Baghdad because I saw that they had a conference coming up. Said, hey, you know, uh, told him my name, told him my company's name and said I was uh, more than happy to do a pro bono presentation. No charge, no fee, because in my mind, I'm like, all right, I'm going to do this exceptional presentation and get you on the hook, and then I can charge your arm and a leg later, right? So uh, they got me for free, and they've had me for free for 13 years now. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's a tough assignment, going to the Caribbean to uh, teach uh, teach firefighters. That's, that's they're, right, man. They're that's cheap. Right. I'm telling you, you know, and if you need someone to ride along one day, just, just let me know. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I, you've talked quite a bit about uh, leadership, and, you know, I'm – personally a big advocate for what what I call developmental leadership and you talk quite a bit about transformational leadership in your teachings and um, you know I want to be clear I, I'm one of those lifelong learners who just hasn't taken it to the next step you however have attained your master's uh, in executive fire service leadership and a bachelor's in, in leadership and working on the doctorate you, you haven't finished the doctorate correct 
No, uh, December. Okay. December this year, if, if I don't mess up. <laughs> okay, so, so Dr. Freeman come December. Got it. So uh, can you speak to how lifelong learning has contributed to your own transformation and to the teachings now that, you know, you talk about transformational leadership on, on the international stage? Can you talk about that? No, absolutely. You know, for, for me, um, again, going back to even when I first got into the fire service and, and taking the mentality that I had in athletics and sports to, to give 100%, right? Because I hear some people sometimes say, oh, I'm going to give 110%. Well, there's no such thing as 110%, but it's, it caps at 100%. So, you know, to, to give right. 100% and be totally committed, uh, the only way to do that is to continue to better yourself through training and education. And so uh, it's a no-brainer for me, you know, 20 years in the game, 42 years old, uh, been blessed and fortunate enough to travel the world, uh, to teach at all the trade shows, to make so many friends around the globe who are just as passionate about uh, wearing this uniform and being a firefighter. Uh, uh, shame on me if I didn't continuously uh, try to improve myself. And so uh, that portion has always been easy. You know, even you know at this stage of my career, I'm still learning new things. And uh, it's remarkable. I, I, I enjoy attending different classes. I enjoy uh, having conversations with subject matter experts. I enjoy asking them very detailed questions and, and, and just bettering myself. And so being that example, because we, we say that all the time to our firefighters, right? Hey, take some initiative, go out there, pursue some training. And that's one reason to this day that if my personnel find a class, and I have to work it out from a labor standpoint here in Oakland, but definitely what happened in, in Hartford, because I had a lot more freedom uh, with budget and so forth. Uh, if our firefighters found a class, what they, they used to do is have to use their own personal time, like I did. So I've always supported firefighters if they want to go to a trade show, if they want to go to a conference, or if they want to pursue a specific class, I would cover their time to where I give them the time off and I'll cover their seat with overtime. And if the budget allowed, I would actually pay for the class and then cover their seat as well back here at the firehouse. So uh, that that's what I, I plan to do here in Oakland. I've already had that conversation with the union uh, because we have a lot of hungry and ambitious firefighters who want nothing more uh, but to just better themselves. And, and so me as a chief, how could you not support that? You know, if, because my philosophy has always been, you know, if I have a member of the organization that's bettering him or herself, then that's going to make the company better. And if the company is better, the battalion is better. If the battalion is better, then the department is better. So um, my pursuits of professional development and always, you know, pushing the ball a little bit further is just me practicing what I preach. But I tell all the firefighters, you know, pursue higher education, pursue certification training, uh, because at the end of the day, when we ask ourselves, uh, what does competent mean or who is competent? It's threefold. It's training, education and experience. But most importantly, it's the application of your training, education and experience. So I just try to be that example, chief. Yeah, outstanding. So. 
You know, it leads me to uh, we're getting close to the to the end here, but it, it leads me to ask you a question about talking to those new folks. So, you know, you've you've provided guidance all over the world, um, different organizations, different countries, different fire departments. If you were speaking right now to one of the newest firefighters joining our ranks, what would you say to them about the power of of higher education and the power of transformational leadership? Well, th- thank you for that question, Chief. And, and, I, I'll, and I'll expand a little bit more on, on transformational leadership because there's really two. Well, if you look it up, there's actually 7,600 leadership styles if you want to be academic about it, right? Right. So, you know, it always, always get a kick out of when someone asks, hey, so Reggie, what's your leadership style? And I always say, well, pick one. You know, it depends on the person, it depends on the circumstance. Uh, but for transformational leadership, I've always been passionate about it as well as servant leadership just because of the impact that it has on people. And simply defined, transformational leadership is, is a leadership approach that causes change in individuals and social systems, which there's no more of uh, no more evidence of that being important other than what we're seeing in today's society. And in it, its ideal form, transformational leadership, it really creates a valuable and positive change in the followers with the end goal of developing followers into leaders. And so it was established by, uh, don't know if you ever heard of him, James McGregor Burns in 1978. Yeah. And 78 is an awesome year because it happens to be the year that I was born. Maybe that's another reason why I gravitate towards the leadership theory. <laughs> mm. But it was first introduced as a concept of transforming leadership uh, from his descriptive research that was done on political leaders. And this is Mr. Burns. Uh, But you can also find it today in organizational psychology as well. And according to Burns back in 78, transforming leadership is a process in which leaders and followers help each other to advance to a higher level of morale and motivation. And so Early on, when I was, uh, and I'm still a student of leadership, but when I first became a student of leadership, every time I heard motivation, I think management. Because we hear about, think about leadership, it's about influence and inspiring. So I always thought that was interesting with the transformational leadership theory, because actually with, with Burns, he actually coined it as transforming leadership. It wasn't until 1985 when Bernard Bass came into the picture and changed it from transforming leadership to transformational leadership. And so where you have transformational leadership, you also have transactional leadership. And so within transformational leadership, the followers, uh, they see their leader from a trust perspective. They admire their leader. There's loyalty uh, and respect for the leader because of the qualities that they uh, demonstrate uh, from a transformational perspective. And so when I'm talking to new firefighters, uh, I always tell them to ensure that not only are you doing everything in your power to better yourself, but you also ensure that you are doing things for the right reason. And it's about our organizational statements our mission, our vision, and our values, everything starts and ends 
with our organizational statements. And as a new firefighter, it is imperative that you ensure that you are not the weakest link as it pertains to getting the job done. When those bells go off, it doesn't matter what that call is, you should feel comfortable uh, with yourself in knowing that you are gonna be able to execute the specific duties and responsibilities that you have as a member of the team, as a member of that company. Doesn't matter if you're on the truck, the engine, or the heavy. And that, that responsibility lies with you. It doesn't lie on the chief. It doesn't lie on the battalion chief, the captain or the lieutenant. That responsibility is on you. And so with that training element, that self-initiative self element, or even higher education for newer members or even senior members of the organization, you know, I manage a $188 million budget here in Oakland. So it'd be fairly hard for me to be proactive, relevant, and efficient if I only had a high school diploma. Is it possible to do all that? Sure. But does it help to have the higher education that I have to manage a $188 million organization? I tell our, our folks at our staff meetings on a weekly basis. We're a $188 million company. So that's why we ask for the reports. That's why we follow up. That's why we establish committees to ensure that the only time that we are reactive is when the bells go off. And even then, there's a certain sense of structure and organization because we proactively have prepared ourselves. Yeah, good stuff, Chief. You, you've truly been uh, motivating uh, both in this discussion but, but in your career, and, and I appreciate that. Uh, any final thoughts for our listeners here today? Well, I, I certainly appreciate this opportunity, Chief, and uh, my, my final thoughts are, you know, you should control your own destiny. Early in my career, I was frequently told what I shouldn't do, what I couldn't do, but I also knew the importance of initiative and also knew the importance of, of execution. So uh, if you find yourself in that similar situation, uh, focus on what's important to you and do things because it's the right thing to do, not because you're trying to prove anybody else wrong. You don't have to. Yep. Outstanding. Good stuff. Good stuff. We have been talking with the Oakland, California Fire Chief, Reginald Freeman. Uh, I want to recap real quick some of the things that we talked about. And, you know, he came from Hartford, Connecticut out to uh, uh, to the West Coast. We talked about those East Coast, West Coast similarities and, and how the relationships with the community are similar no matter pretty much no matter where you are you know we have seen some differences um, across the country but his experience has been that uh, the similarities are um, uh, there's more similarities than there are differences and we talked about uh, beyond that his international experiences uh, working in iraq uh, in a war zone and, and working as a fire chief in a war zone uh, and how that uh, growth in leadership was exponential in that environment uh, compared to working in the States. Talked about his early career in Mississippi and how uh, that was a very formative years and where he needed to uh, put himself through um, a, a number of classes, in fact, most of the classes. And his, his takeaway from that time was that he never wanted to be, and what he challenges us as uh, individual firefighters and certainly new firefighters, he never wanted to be the weakest link. And then now as a chief, he, he uh, using that same mindset, he wants every firefighter to come to work and feel valued, respected, 
and have uh, a healthy environment. And we went on to talk about uh, new programs that uh, are going on in Oakland and uh, a it's called MACRO is the acronym for the program. It's a, a combination of uh, the mental health that uh, the fire service and law enforcement used to run together and where it's going to evolve. Uh, it's currently still evolving to where the fire service will take a lead as uh, the um, uh, response element, but that it will not impact fire department specifically uh, as far as response paradigm, it will be a, a combination of civilian EMS and uh, clinician uh, program built. They're currently in a, uh, the development of the program as a 12-month pilot, and hopefully by the end of the year, we'll see that uh, evolve, and maybe we can have the chief back on uh, to, uh, to see how that's going. And then we talked about his passion to help others succeed his total commitment to training and education. We hope to be calling him Dr. Freeman by the end of the year as a, as a uh, that commitment to his education and training continues to evolve. And then he talked about how um, he enjoyed having, you know, specifically we were talking about lifelong learning and, and how that manifests with him. And he talked about having conversations and asking questions and how he practices what he preaches. And then real briefly, I talked about the uh, application of training, education, experience. The application is obviously more important than the training, education, or experience alone when, when taken as individual nuggets alone. And then finally, we were talking about uh, some uh, words of advice he could give for new recruits. And uh, he talked about being a student of leadership. Uh, he talked about uh, bettering yourself for the right reasons in conjunction with your organizational mission, vision, and values. And then finally, about controlling your own destiny. That's all we have time for today. We've been talking with Oakland, California Fire Chief Reginald Freeman. Chief Freeman, thanks for joining us today, and thanks to our listeners for being with us. This is Mark Basher, Executive Editor for FireRescue1.com. Have a great day on purpose. Keep safe, stay smart, and take care.